Good day to my listeners. Well, this one was an absolute cracker, if I must say so myself. We had Dr. Rodney Blackhurst come onto the show to discuss his notion of the man plant, which is basically central themes in the alchemy of farming, which is a topic that I've been looking at quite a bit of late. We investigated basically a more traditional and ancient primordial view of agriculture. And the way that this is done in this extremely interesting essay is through the Greek tradition, the ancient Greek tradition. I recommend that everyone read this essay. It's quite short, very accessible, and is full of interesting stuff about agriculture and about the way that the ancient Greeks dealt with such things, such as uh, the mystery rites, the certain cosmological elements to their conception of uh, agriculture and alchemy. A little bit on, uh, on Rodney. He was a teacher and a student of the traditional philosophy and comparative religion uh, at La Trobe University in Victoria. Um, he did his doctoral thesis on um, the mythological underpinnings of Plato's cosmological dialogue. And he comes very much, as we will see, from a platonic angle. And particularly, that's the case in this uh, article specifically. Uh, he has a number of essays, and I hope to have him on soon to discuss, uh, but I'm going to provide links in the undersigned, um, so everyone will have access to them. And I, again, very much recommend that you read them. So without further ado, here is our conversation on the man plant and traditional farming. Okay. Okay, I think we're good now. Um, uh, now, I guess we'll we'll just start off with a little bit of an introduction uh, on your background, uh, academic interests, uh, anything relevant you think. I, I think the audience uh, would appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, um, I worked as a as an academic uh, at uh, in in Australia for over thirty years. Um, I'm retired now. Um, over that period, <clears throat> I taught in the uh, and taught and, and did re conducted research in the humanities. My specific field was um, Greek philosophy, um, Plato in particular, and uh, that's sort of my philosophical affiliations. Um, but then, by extension, um, I've expanded out from there and looking into areas of traditional cosmologies um, through the uh, Islamic tradition in particular, and more recently, um, the East Asian traditions, uh, Chinese and, uh, and so on. And my, my main interest, I guess, stemming from the study of Plato has been uh, alchemy, and the alchemical traditions in, uh, across various cultures. Very interesting. Um, so uh, you are kind of affiliated with, or at least involved with, um, strongly from what I can gather, uh, with the traditionalist school. Is that correct? Well, yeah. Um, sort of. Those, if you put together those two, uh, those two basic interests that I have, um, namely uh, 
Platonism or a platonic, a broadly platonic outlook. Um, and then the Islamic tradition, um, Sufism in particular, um, that sort of these days that sort of inevitably leads you towards you encounter the, the traditionalist school. Um, but I also had the privilege the in the course that I taught, it was a very unusual course, and uh, several people in that department were were bona fide um, traditionalists, if you like, and uh, some notable people um, amongst them, yeah. Mm, interesting. So I always ask um, <clears throat> academics in particular, uh, with, with traditionalism and the traditionalist school, um, how did you come across it initially? And the reason I ask that is because academia, at least nowadays, seems squarely um, positioned with the opposite kind of views, typically. Yeah. So, yeah. so how did you, um, what, what was your own journey to get to this point? Of, of, yeah, okay. So, so, so again, I was, I was primarily interested in Plato and the Platonic tradition. Um, and then um, when I went back to study as, a, as an adult, to study that formally, um, people around me, colleagues and other students, they were already reading traditionalist material. Um, actually, in the Australian context, there's a story behind that. Um, one of my one of my colleagues uh, was the Australian poet Clive Faust, and he um, in the let's see after the war in the 1950s, early 60s, um, there was a group of Australian intellectuals uh, who all met in a bookshop called Norman Rubb Bookshop, and uh, Clive was amongst those, and they translated and imported into Australia at that time um, traditionalist works, Gainon and uh, Chouan and, uh, and others. And so um, it was in the background. I, I encountered it through colleagues, yeah. Mm, very interesting. Yeah, I had no idea about that. But it does seem there are a number of Australian academics that are, well, disproportionately involved, shall we say, in, in that kind of school, I've noticed. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And uh, and the department in which I, I worked for, for all those years, those decades, um, that was sort of an island of that. It was in a, uh, I mean, let's face it, we were in a uh, small backwater, academic backwater. We were in a, on a rural campus or a regional campus of a large university and largely we went under the radar and we uh, and we um, we in investigated and researched areas that are not not usually welcome in academia. That's true. Um, and to be honest, what happened was eventually they closed it down. Wow. Okay. So they as as they say, out of sight. Sorry, out of sight, out of mind. Um, it seems to be yeah. the, the key here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, why did they shut it down? I mean, was it to do with budgets or what? What excuse? Did well, they use? well, well. Uh, the excuse, the, the, the ostensible reason was uh, just the restructuring of the university um, overall. But uh, but in fact, the, the the outcome of it was that uh, our our program was closed down and we were all retrenched, and uh, the money went to to more fashionable projects like the um, you know the gender studies department and uh, and the various postmodern um, uh, enterprises in the humanities. I think that that's fair enough to say that that's what happened. Sure. It's unfortunate. It's the way things are going. It seems um, a lot of young people have no uh, basis in the 
traditional elements of their culture these days. Oh, and yeah, indeed, indeed. And in Australia, even recently, um, they've closed down various uh, Western traditions courses um, because they're so uh, odious from a certain political perspective yeah, yeah and so we, we were we were very lucky we got away with it for like 30 years it's um, a good run <laughs> yeah yeah we that was a good run and we we uh we in, we you know handed over that tradition to i don't know probably several thousand students over that period sure and do you think that there are some students that have taken up the mantle um, oh, absolutely! Yeah, lots, yeah, lots of them. Lots of them have gone into education, and that's very difficult for them because the education system is so comprehensively hostile to to those perspectives now. Uh, so that they, I know, I know several former students who find the education system very difficult to work in. Others have moved into other fields, and uh, and some of them uh, are writers, and they're in. You know, uh, they've become writers and contributors to to traditional fields in various ways. Yeah, interesting. Well, maybe we can speak about that a little bit later. I wouldn't mind um, going through maybe some students that have gone that way and maybe some of their literature and other stuff. I'd mm. be interested in investigating that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think um, just to change things, um, th this podcast is obviously about your your um, article, uh, The Man Plant, which yeah, um, yeah. I enjoyed a great deal, I must say. Okay. Um, I, I've always had an interest in regenerative agriculture and biodynamics. Yeah. I've had various people on in that capacity. Oh, okay. Um, so so um, I suppose a good, good place to start, I think, in a way, um, is to perhaps um, outline what we're doing wrong with agriculture, just to offer some context uh, for people who may not yeah, have yeah. much of an idea. Um, and particularly from a traditionalist perspective, uh, can we yeah. go through some of the things wrong with large scale agriculture and maybe our current reliance on it? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I guess it's, uh, it's such, a, such, a huge, uh, such a huge topic with so many ramifications because obviously uh, the agricultural system that you run has all sorts of social ref reflections in the social and political realm and, and, and so forth. So it's difficult to separate agriculture from, from other things. But, uh, but just in terms of the agriculture itself, I guess the, the overwhelming problem the overwhelming problem that, that's presented by industrial agriculture, let's call it that, is uh, soil, soil damage, damage to the soil, and in particular, compaction of the soil. Um, you know, the problem is so, so severe in some places uh, that yeah, certainly in, in Europe, in, in some areas, the the soil has collapsed to such an extent under the pressure of like large large scale industrial agriculture where you have huge machines and and so forth that uh, you know they they have to pump polystyrene balls into the into the soil to prop it up um, its compaction is is happening in the agricultural system on a on a massive scale that's that's the the core problem, and you can describe that in several ways. You could call it uh, diminishing uh, organic matter in the soil. Uh, more specifically, though, 
diminishing humus in the soil as opposed to uh, organic matter and, uh, uh, and, and, and therefore mineralization. When I talk about uh, compaction, you're talking about mineralization of the soil. So the soil's just reduced to its mineral constituents. And uh, in the industrial model, that doesn't matter because plants live on nutrients which are water soluble. So all you have to do, well, the soil just becomes a medium for flushing through soluble nutrients. Uh, so it's essentially the same as like hydroponics, except on a very, very large scale. Sure, um, but soil soil damage is the is the main thing. But I mean, no no one can deny that that uh, industrial agriculture is fantastically productive in the short term, um, but it's squandering its basic resource, which is uh, which is soil. Now, I, I've always said to people that I I think um, people talk about global warming and, and things of this nature being a threat to mm. species, but no one ever talks about soil. It's bizarre to me. Um, yeah, and, and, and even in even in terms of uh, global warming, you know, like if you want to talk about things like that, global, uh, climate change and things like that, the, the problem they identify as carbon and uh, carbon in the atmosphere, well, a large a large amount of that is coming from has come historically from the decline of soils uh, over vast areas in the last say 200 years especially in the last 100 years um, one of the biodynamic people in australia um alex podlensky who was sort of the champion of the system in australia is very very successful um in one of his papers, he does calculations based on his soil and his farm, um, the amount of carbon stored in the soil down to a metre um, below the surface. And then he extrapolates that across to, you know, on a large scale and so forth. And, and he points out that if you're worried about climate change of any, any description, um, one of your best strategies is just to, just to do better agriculture to increase the amount of carbon in the soil um, using using productive soil as a carbon sink is uh, is a very obvious thing to do but instead uh, everyone obsesses about energy sources windmills and solar and nuclear and so forth but part of the problem is uh, a very large part of the problem is um, soil depletion yeah, I agree. He he was quite successful in the carbon capture in his soil. I forget the exact figures. Yeah, he was. He many was thousands yeah. of tons per acre or something like that. I forget the exact. Yeah, number. yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He he was. He, yeah, I I haven't got it with me, but he he wrote a paper on that uh, on that particular thing. He did tests on his own soil and then extrapolated from that. Yeah. Mm. Um, so one of the major themes in your article, something you referred to just previously, is um, what you refer to the, as the alchemy of farming. Um, yeah. So a lot of us, I think, we, we understand a little something of alchemy. We understand, you know, that there were people working in laboratories in medieval Europe, mm. um, symbology with people like Jung, you know, scientists mm. maybe asserting that it was some kind of proto-science. And then, of course, in the East, I guess you have... Uh, Taoist notions of inner alchemy and you know whatever else, um, mm -hmm. but I, I'd not seen it really used before in the context of farming. 
Um, so yes. how does okay. alchemy, I, I guess it's fairly obvious, but how does alchemy relate to farming in, in your opinion? Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> well, al alchemy, and uh, let's talk about just the European tradition, it sort of has three three schools, three three different types of alchemy, if you like. And the one that the people are most familiar with is metallic alchemy, which is where you had, uh, which quickly degenerated into charlatanism, um, where, you know, you, people are trying to manufacture gold out of base metals and uh, people claiming that they could do this and so forth. And... Uh, more recently, of course, that's been acquired by Jungian psychology, who wants to understand that as a type of symbolic inner transformation. Um, then there's, but but then there's the Paracelsian tradition in the German world, uh, which is almost almost entirely devoted to herbalism, and uh, so that's that's gone into naturopathy and uh, other things like that, and also into Steiner to some large extent. But then there's a, a third tradition called the Mutus Liber tradition, uh, the Book of Silence, and uh, that's largely to do with agriculture. Um, uh, it's to do with a type of alchemy that's uh, concerned with base materials, and it's primarily it's focused on the prima materia, discovering the prima materia. And so those sorts of alchemists, you know, they, they worked with manures and soils and uh, base materials. Um, and they too, that quickly too degenerated into charlatanism actually, but uh, uh, in some very famous cases. Uh, but that goes into Steiner, that goes into biodynamics, the mutus liber tradition of uh, European alchemy, which is largely, it's not metallic and it's not to do with herbs, it's to do with soil and manures and skulls and uh, things like that. You yeah. mentioned, so you, yeah, sorry. Go yeah. On. yeah, so, you, so you've got a very wide, wide uh, tradition of alchemy in, in Europe. So the, the type of alchemy that I'm talking about comes out of the mutus liber tradition, I guess. Okay. You mentioned your background is Platonism. Um, did mm. Plato have anything to, to do with the alchemical tradition? Did he? Well, well, yeah, yeah. That's and that's my starting point, I guess. Uh, I studied a particular dialogue called the Timaeus, and that's Plato's major work on cosmology. And it's a very, very, very influential work in the Western tradition. Um, it gives us our traditional cosmology in the West, and by, by extension, it. Plato tells us more or less that it, he, he's sort of lifted it from Egypt. Um, and it's very, very alchemical, the, the, the whole uh, cosmology that's presented there. Mm. And, and in, in any case, um, I guess the, the connection with, with uh, agriculture goes back to Egypt itself. And the, so the very word alchemy, the very word alchemy, uh, you know, the best guess is that it comes from the Arabic word meaning black and it's a reference to the black soils of Egypt and the 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 functional parallel in all of this uh, the whole tradition is really between between the black soils the black soil and the darkness beyond the stars that's the sort of basic symbolism that's going on in that cosmology that there's there's a uh, uh, there's gradations of reality from the and a parallel between the darkness beyond the stars and the darkness of the earth. 
Um, and the alchemy sort of works from that. It works from that basis. That's its most fundamental structure, I think. And the word alchemy means that itself. It means the black soil. Um, yeah. Would it be correct uh, to say um, that the blackness and, and the symbology, the prima materia, is there some relationship there between those things? Yeah, that's yeah. that's exactly right. Yeah, the the prima materia that they're seeking is uh, is that is that blackness. It's the darkness beyond the stars, the blackness, which which is paradoxically referred to as light, actually okay. in the in the tradition, you know. But uh, but but from a farmer's point of view, um, there's a the black soil that he works is a is a mirror of the darkness beyond the stars hmm. so, hmm. so would it be then correct to say that um the greeks basically took this and made it into their own thing uh, this exception yeah yeah, yeah. i think that's right and 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 uh, i'm i mean i'm a i'm a student of the greek tradition largely because it's accessible we have the text and it's got a, a a frame of a way of speaking and thinking about things that i'm familiar with and i can understand whereas the egyptian tradition is a bit more archaic and uh, alien no doubt it's purer in lots of ways but uh, it's harder to acquire and so yeah the the greek tradition plato in particular is uh, is it's survived and it's fully developed so oh. it's a very good source, yeah. Interesting. So, um, in the context of this uh, this Greek um, agriculture, you refer to most of the world's mythologies um, essentially being agriculturally based. Um, mm. Specifically, in your Man Plant uh, article, uh, you refer to the uh, the Demi Eleusis in in Athens, was suburb of Athens, and mm. I believe they conducted here an annual festival of of mysteries. Um, specifically to um, honor Demeter and Persephone. Um, and you, you call this essentially an agricultural myth. Um, can we go into uh, that myth and its significance in terms of agriculture in Greece? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so Demeter is the grain goddess. And so, so this is a mythology developed by grain based civilizations. And so, so yeah, yeah, there, there is an earlier, there's an earlier uh, hunter gatherer mythology, of course, but I'm talking about the, the the mythologies of the grain based civilizations. And in Greece, you've got the mysteries of Demeter, the, the Alicinian mysteries. Um, and that's right, it's near, near to Athens um, and very famous in the ancient world. They're essentially, it's, it essentially celebrates an agricultural myth um, where Persephone, um, through various numbers of intrigues and, uh, and acts, um, has to visit the underworld for a third of every year. And this is clearly an allegory of um, the decline of winter every year. Uh, in Greece, the, world, the, the, the year is more or less divided up into three seasons rather than four. And there's an unproductive season. Um, and in the mythology, uh, this is because Persephone has to visit the underworld and uh, where, 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 where she's the bride of um, Hades for that period of time. And then in the spring, she is reunited with her, her mother, 
And so this is an allegory of the uh, vegetation cycle um, quite clearly. And the Greeks quite clearly understood it like that as part of the, as celebrating and reflecting the agricultural cycle, mm. uh, but expressed in terms of, in terms of myths. Yes. As, as an aside, do you, do you have any idea what the rights included? Just as a curiosity. I always yeah, no, that. no, that's, that's, that's a very interesting question. And I, I've actually been reading about this uh, just recently. And the, the fact is that uh, no one actually spilled the beans. Uh, when you, when you went into the, um, uh, to the mystery halls, you had to um, swear an oath of secrecy, and uh, this was enforced very severely. Like uh, you were, you could be executed if you spoke publicly about the the mysteries. And we actually don't have any recorded uh, account of what actually happened in the mysteries. Um, we have bits and pieces, and the rest we have to guess. So we're not actually sure what happened in the mysteries. No. Um, the, the, the upshot of the mysteries, though, was was to cure you of the fear of death. Mm. Um, that's the that's the purpose of the mysteries. Um, it's a difficult question because uh, in Plato, very conspicuously, Socrates is not initiated. He never went through the mysteries. Okay. Uh, and yet, and yet, and yet, in the Phaedo, in the Plato story, Socrates is not afraid to die. The question becomes, why not? He's not initiated. Hmm. What's your view on Socrates? I've heard some revisionist views lately amongst several. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Favorably, but um, sure. Um, oh, he's an annoying sort of character, isn't he? I mean, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, he is. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think he's a very ambiguous character, and we only really know him from Plato's dialogues, and that's largely um, <laughs> fiction. Well, not quite fiction. Plato is very careful about when he creates fictions, um, but you know uh, how accurate is his portrayal of Socrates? We have no idea, really. We have a couple of other sources of Socrates, and depending on how you like it, you can uh, you can um, you can have a hostile view of him. Certainly, certainly, there are. I've read several hostile accounts of him, but largely they're from people whose problem with him is that he was an enemy of democracy. Mm. So they, they don't like his politics. I, I heard someone say you could envisage him in a postmodern philosophy department these days, perhaps. But, um, well, yeah, you not, could. Yeah. Yeah. You could, but I think that that's a misconstruction. Um, yeah. So that, for, for instance, the reason postmodernist might might uh, identify with him is because he's a deconstructionist. He deconstructs people or, or their arguments. So he, he walks around and he asks someone, you know, someone who claims to know what justice is, he says, all right, what's justice? And they tell him what they think justice is and Socrates takes their argument apart and dismantles it. But he doesn't replace it with anything. Mm -hmm. He just leaves them in a state that is called in Greek uh, aporia, unknowing. Mm -hmm. And uh, Socrates thinks that that's good for your soul, that okay. mm. humility of unknowing. Um, but uh, postmodernism is sort of wants to revel in uh, uncertainty. So they, yeah, I can see why they think Socrates might be a hero, or why people might think uh, Socrates uh, is destructive. Mm, sure. 
Um, just bringing it back to the, the agriculture, that was very interesting though. Yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, 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 sure. My own views have changed on him recently as well, because obviously in school you're brought up to think, oh, well, Socrates is a genius. And maybe, you know, maybe he was in some ways, but um, yeah, it's good yeah, to hear yeah, a different yeah, perspective sure. on it. Um, one, of, one of the major themes in your in your book uh, is this idea of the golden age. Um, and of course, yeah. we see this in Vedanta. Um, lots of Eastern religions have this cyclical view of time, uh, you know, as do many of the primordial European traditions. Um, and specifically, obviously, in the Greek context, uh, you mentioned Hesiod. And um, I just wanted to delve into this a little bit. Um, why, why are humans described as being born from the soil like plants? in the golden age this is a big theme in your your yeah it is it is yeah the idea of uh, autochthony um as it's called yeah uh being born from the soil yeah um and this is a this is a very widespread mythology and uh much more widespread than what we think um and it's it's very very prominent in plato and in plato's dialogues you get that scheme of the four um the four ages and that there's a degeneration of the human race but the golden race didn't reproduce through animal means they were um they had this sort of special state where they're born directly from the soil yeah that's the that's the mythology um so what's all that about what's uh, that's and in in athens in athens it's 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 used in a in a chauvinistic sort of way, it becomes a patriotic myth for many people um, in many cultures. The idea that we're not like foreigners; we were born here. We are, we are children of the soil. You know, it's a, it's a, even a, a, a an active uh, political ideology in somewhere like Malaysia, where they have the doctrine of Bumaputra. The Malays are born of the soil. Um, and everyone else aren't, isn't. Um, so it's a very widespread myth. What's it about? What's it about? It's, 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 uh, I take it as a philosophical myth, but you can think of it in lots of different ways. Um, probably probably uh, an interesting way to think about it is what's it about? Um, if you if you're in Egypt in, in ancient Egypt, which is you know a flat desert, you get a perfect view of the sky. And um, if you if you're standing there and you're watching the stars rise, you might see Orion the hunter, you know, and over in the east, and over a period of two hours, what ha- seems to happen is that Orion arises out of the horizon, arises out of the soil arises out of the earth yeah I, th- I think that the autochthony myths are ultimately about that sort of experience about that sort of um, symbolism that the constellations of the stars rise up out of the earth and so the golden race are people who are rooted in that cosmology they're people who are um, who are integrated with the cosmos and what happens over time is that we fall away from that and uh, as plato puts it sort of uh, poetically he says you know we come to be born out of season Mm. and uh, uh, there's a whole symbolism to to autochthony like that Um, 
it's about the, the golden race. What's the golden state? This golden state is being embedded in the ground of being. That's what it is. It's being embedded in the ground of being. And uh, in this... In these various traditions, what happens is that we we lose that rootedness in the cosmos over a period of time, and uh, and this is described as a degeneration of the human race. Mm. And you can see just what you're describing there now how um, agriculture would be really deeply involved in this process of degeneration, right? Like you look at yeah. the way we do yeah, things yeah, today yeah. and it's almost yeah. the polar opposite of what you've described so far in yeah. many ways. Yeah, yeah in, the, in the alchemical tradition, remember, there's no real distinction between um, the material and the spiritual. Mm. Rather, they're considered to be a single material in different gradations. So it's an emanationist cosmology that you have here, and that's what you have in Plato, an emanationist cosmology. Mm. Um, uh, and and there's, a, there's a character that, I, that I've studied and written about. His name's Alan Chadwick, and he's an interesting guy because he was actually a student of Rudolf Steiner. He had Rudolf Steiner as his personal tutor for a while when he was, yet, when he was a kid, mm. when he was young. And uh, Alan, Alan was... Uh, according to some accounts, the greatest horticulturalist of the 20th century. He was an amazing gardener. And uh, we have a number of his lectures, and they're very eccentric and esoteric and strange. Uh, Alan's a funny character. But uh, one of the things he says, he's talking about soil compaction. And he says this in numerous of his lectures, and he doesn't elaborate on it very much, but he says with soil compaction, and he's describing it to his students who are agricultural students, you know, so he's, that's very about horticulture. But then he says, at the same time, he says, this is exactly what has happened to our consciousness. What has happened to our consciousness is it's all been squeezed down and compacted. And he thinks that, uh, that this is an exact parallel, that the compaction of the soil is reflected exactly in the compaction of our consciousness. And uh, I'm, I've been very taken by that analogy that he wants to... So whatever he says about the soil, he's also saying about the psyche. He's also saying about the soul. Yeah. So, so what does um, he mean by the compaction? Of, um, yeah, yeah, of, of, consciousness. Of, of, of consciousness. Okay, what he what he means is, if we if we go back to the that traditional cosmology, what what you've got is sort of these uh, this emanationist cosmology, which is like on a scale that extends from the soil all the way up to the darkness beyond the stars. Yeah, and you can divide that up into various that uh, chain up into various uh, grades different ways what he means is the in in our modern consciousness we're locked into a world below the sun that's what he means he means we're sort of we're, we're cocooned our, our minds are cocooned and and we're locked into it we into a very narrow band of consciousness yeah um, and so our consciousness doesn't really reach up in beyond beyond the moon into the planets and in, 
into the stars and it's not embedded in that ultimate darkness, that ultimate uh, reality. That's what he means. He means we've become like root-bound plants. He compares us to, he says, you know, you take a, take a plant and you put it in a pot and uh, it grows all right for a while, but then it becomes root-bound because it hasn't got, its roots can't expand any further. So it's locked into a very small space. And that's what he means. He thinks that uh, in the modern era, our consciousness, our, our minds, our psyche is locked into a very small space. Mm, and yeah, yeah. Um, and this, uh, this is exactly the same doctrine that you get in a very different context um, in uh, Henry Corbin, in, in Henry Corbin. Um, the scholar of, um, of uh, Shiite Sufism or Shiite esotericism, the Surawadi school in uh, the Persian world, who, who is a great Platonist, uh, Korban, um, who's, sort of on, who's sort of a traditionalist. He's, uh, he's in that, mm, the traditionalists don't quite know what to make of him, but he's, uh, he's, he's in that that world and for Corban the problem becomes historically that what's happened is the collapse of the angelic realm in the religious world he that's an exact parallel here um, so that yeah we have uh, we have the material world and then up above that we have um, God and God's still up there for many people but what's gone missing is the intermediate world that's what's gone missing. There's no intermediate between um, between the divine and man. That's that's what's gone missing, and uh, so that the whole things become compacted. Our our spiritual universe has become very compacted. Um, I think that's what Chadwick means, and that's sort of the basis of a uh, agricultural um, alchemy as well. Sure. But what I've noticed is, um, so, so with my meditation practice um, over the years, <clears throat> this is somewhat related, tell me if I'm on the right track, but mm. I, I've noticed that people do not notice things and that myself included initially, like we're, we're consistently hypnotized by this overstimulation in the external world. Um, and yep we don't notice anything. And it's almost like that simple yeah. act of just sitting back and being able to look and notice is, is very important in uncompacting consciousness to a large degree. And it, yeah. people are very much not living in that, in that uh, mind space of, of just that yeah, simple yeah. noticing that, of things. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, and, and various, you know, various, uh, Various teachers describe it in various ways. So, the, for instance, Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff, uh, he describes that state as being asleep. Mm. And so, so you know, the, the Gurdjieffian path is about waking people up. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an increase in consciousness. But, but also, um, I remember my my, my own uh, mentor telling me about uh, Parmenides and the Parmenidean illumination the or, or or the platonic vision of the good and he said you know um finally it's just a slight shift of attention that's all it is it's just an attentiveness um 
And yeah, yeah. So, so you know, you can describe it as saying everyone walks around asleep. We're not paying attention. Um, yeah, I think that that's part of the tradition, definitely. Yeah. Mm. But and, and part of this, of course, biodynamic farming. And you've mentioned Rudolf Steiner a couple of times. One mm. one of the things I at first had difficulty getting my head around was the, the more uh, liminal elements of. Um, the method of biodynamic farming, like sowing seeds according to the you know stars and the planets and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, was, it, was this his attempt to overcome that? And and in a way, was it? Yeah, I presume yeah, it, it has alchem alchemical roots yeah. as well. Is what is what you're saying? Yeah, it is. Um, so the so that in for Steiner uh, and the context of the development of biodynamics, it's it's he's developing a sort of um, alchemical agriculture that he hopes will contribute to the spiritual transformation or awakening of uh, human beings in future, the way he describes it as their spiritual evolution. So, yeah, he thinks that uh, it's necessary to build a new agriculture for a a, a new um, for a new era, a new spiritual era. That's part of Steiner's thing. Of course, not 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 all biodynamic farmers are into that. <laughs> they mm. they can practice the method without subscribing to the to the worldview behind it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I've I've spoken to a couple of farmers that do use it, and they they swear by it. And it, it seems to me that part of it is actually what we we're talking about before, like noticing, and and in their case, noticing the landscape changing, noticing you know, what the soil might need and, and being really engaged on every level with, with their yeah, yeah. land and, and how yeah, it works. Yeah, that's right. And and Steiner describes in his lectures, I think, uh, from memory that, you know, the way that uh, in the past farmers learned so much about their soil just by smelling it, you know, the, the, the scent of the soil and things like that. Um, but, of course, you know, with modern agriculture, you effectively doing it from satellites and things like you become very disconnected from the soil mm. itself yeah mm. yeah absolutely um back to the the greeks um you mentioned mm. and, and i like this this notion of being born from the soil um and you mm. mentioned specifically the atticans uh, view yeah. themselves in this way is it are they different to the rest of the greeks um and what was uh, their their deal i guess yeah, yeah, okay. So, so Attica is the region around uh, around Athens, and so Athens was, you know, it becomes a major centre of uh, Attica because of the its geography. It has uh, it has the Acropolis, uh, which is from a very very early period uh, a sacred place, um, and the people of Attica, and then by extension the people of Athens, um, believed they developed the mythology that they were children of the soil and they have a uh, so all their all their kings and everything go back to autochthons people who were born from the soil originally um, and uh, this becomes the claim of the the people of Attica and uh, specifically the no the nobility of um, of uh, Athens that they of all Greeks, are not colonists, they are indigenous, they are Aboriginal, they are people of the soil. We were here first. Um, and, and so it, it becomes a political ideology, certainly, 
What you get in Plato, though, is Plato says, yeah, underneath this political ideology, um, which is the ideology of the Athenian Empire, um, underneath that, it's actually a very profound philosophical doctrine. Um, and uh, I think that Plato explores that in his dialogues, and that's what I've, I've tried to study, the idea of autochthony. And, uh, and he links it with that metallic alchemy, you know, the transformation of base elements back into gold. Um, that's where you get that alchemical imagery in Plato, yeah. Mm, interesting. And, and of course, you link that with, um, <clears throat> I think it was a great myth of the sky god, sky god sorry, Hephaestus and uh, the Earth Mother Gaia. Um, yeah. And how you, you mentioned that there's, there's also the elements of the smith, but even the smith works in service of the farm farmer. or the farming. Yeah. Can we go into that? That's a right. Bit? I found that really interesting, actually. Yeah, that, that particular mythology. And uh, yeah, well, the, the, the smith and the weaver are the, the essential um, deities of Athens. Um, there's uh, Athena and Hephaestus and Gaia. They're the three. Actually, there's four four deities on the Acropolis, and they're the four elements. Poseidon is the other one, the god of water. But uh, Hephaestus is a fire god. He's a, you know he's the blacksmith, and so he tends the fire. Um, Athena is a goddess of clouds and air um, in her mythology, and uh, then there's Gaia, who's earth. And there's this sort of complex surrogacy myth that goes on there in Athens um, that's very complex. But what it amounts to is about, it's about the impregnating of the earth by the sky god. It's essentially one of those myths. It's a very, very early and um, widespread mythology, the idea that the sky fertilizes the earth. And it's an obvious enough thing every time it rains. but also I mentioned a fire as well, you know, um, uh, lightning, for instance, lightning fertilizes the earth, the sky fertilizes the earth, that's the idea. And so the in, in many cultures, the sky is masculine and the earth is feminine. Um, and in Athens, you've got a very complex development of that particular mythology with Hephaestus as one of the major gods. He's the blacksmith god, the craftsman, the divine craftsman. Um, and he, he, he's the background figure in Plato's cosmology where you have the demiurge who crafts the cosmos. It's a crafted cosmos. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, yeah, the, the, the blacksmith, the role of the blacksmith in, uh, in society, that's the alchemical myth. You know, the blacksmith is this, uh, alchemy is based on this paradox that says, um, actually, the person who knows most about the, the world and the cosmos is the least qualified. It's the blacksmith. It's the man that tends the fire and who's in charge of the transformations of basic materials. Mm. Um, and so the blacksmith becomes a cosmic figure in that sort of um, mythology. Yeah, sure. So, so keeping to the Greek example and just bringing it back down to earth a little bit for people, mm. um, in in a practical sense, with the ancient Greek farmer, perhaps an Attican farmer, mm. um, obviously they cared about yield. This was important. What they got out of the land. But how do you think he saw? The, the act of farming, like how is it different for him? Mm. 
what, what would yeah okay. how, would he, how but, would he have viewed his day-to-day work i guess yeah well, well well again from from by extension of what i was just saying um it's about the marriage of the sky and the earth that's how they think of it mm. they think of it essentially like that and so and we don't do that we think of the soil as a chemical thing and we we you know manipulate the uh, the chemistry of it in various ways but traditional farming is really about the marriage of the sky and the earth and so tilling the soil plowing the soil working the soil it's about moving putting air into the soil that's what it's about it's about building a it's about traditional farming is about building a um uh, a diaphragm between the sky and the earth and that is to say soil underneath the soil is the bedrock and above the soil is uh and above the soil is the is the air soil is good structured soil is mostly air and so all agri- all traditional agricultural practices in attica and anywhere else are about putting the sky into the soil about creating this uh this intermediate zone between sky and soil filling the top soil full of air that's in a in a stable form that's really what it's about mm. Mm. And, and you mentioned there's in um uh the the seeds the element of i think sunlight is the way you describe it as well as involved in this so um was yeah. it an ap- apollonic element is is how's that involved in all of this so the the, the seed the seed aspect yeah. of it okay yeah. Yeah. um uh let's see um oh well yeah yeah because because in the emanationist cosmology um the the elements are just there's only one element but it's in four different states if you like so there's fire and fire when, when i'm talking about fire and uh, hephaestus fire is plato in the timaeus talks about two different types of fire he talks about hot fire and cold fire by cold fire he means light he means light um and so when we're talking about Hephaestus and the fire god by extension we're talking about light and so yeah you're not only bringing air into the soil you're also bringing light into the soil as well um you so, so that the upper elements if you like are fire and air and you you have to bring those into a stable union with the lower elements uh earth and water and good soil is where you've got those four elements in the proper sort of structured relationship that's what that's how that how, how that's to be thought of i think mm-hmm. so so that yeah so it's not just fire uh although it's certainly that because um if your soil is full of air and air pockets in st- structured good structured soil then it's that air acts as an insulator you know it warms up in the summer and it stays warm in the winter um uh, so that it, it, there's it, there's uh heat into the soil but also also light you know uh fire 
air, light, those more subtle elements, you have to bring them into union with the denser elements of water and, uh, and earth. Yeah, interesting. And this, this ties into this ideal of the orumic plant. Um, yeah. What, what yeah, is yeah, the orumic yeah. plant uh, in your, in your uh, cosmology okay. that you're setting out here? Okay, yeah. Um, so the, the, the orumic plant, if you like, is one that's, uh, that has these qualities of the golden age. Um, uh, the plant man, the man plant. Yeah, the, 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 the myths of the golden age are about the autochthon who rises out of the soil like a plant and, uh, you know, is therefore free of animal reproduction. Um, uh, this is the, the golden soul. And in traditional agriculture and uh, biodynamic agriculture, they're interested in plants that display something of this quality, um, some of the qualities of being a manned plant. That is to say, what you want is to bring your plants closer to being human, if you like. It's a, it's a form of domestication, really. You're domesticating sort of plants and you want to, them to, to take on a character that is suitable for for human beings or that reflects human beings and specifically what you want are intelligent plants that's what you want you want plants that display as if they display a sort of intelligence um, and but also um, in terms of morphology uh, Alex Podlensky in biodynamics, he's very particular. He was very particular about the form of the plant and the way in which the plant holds itself upright. And this is uh, an imitation of the human state, standing upright, yeah? Mm. Um, and so he thinks that plants that are suitable for human beings to eat have this characteristic that they've been domesticated to the human state in some way. They're both intelligent and upright. Um, and so traditional cultures are interested in this idea of the man plant, the autochthon, and and any anywhere where this a trace of this still exists in the plant kingdom. And one of those, uh, so traditionally there's things like ginseng. Why is ginseng regarded as so sacred? Why is it regarded as a panacea? Well, because it's man-shaped, it's it, it takes on a human form, and similarly the mandrake in Europe and uh, any anything like that, any detection that they have that there's uh, of this that uh, plants have these human characteristics. They're very very interested in that, and in fact, their agricultural systems want to develop that. It was interesting you mentioned the mandrake root because I'd only really like obviously it's kind of a mysterious plant like yeah, <laughs> in, yeah, in a way yeah. but um you know it's tied up with the homunculus and all these other myths um that's right that's right can we go into that a yeah. bit like I, I find that yeah yeah all, all all of those all of those myths are really really developments from the same sort of doctrine and what's going on here I guess is uh is just a the persistence of certain motifs and symbolism across centuries in different cultures. And in the case of agricultural um, mythology, very often passed on orally by rural people. Uh, and so subject to all of the changes and, and, and 
morphing of uh, folklore uh, and things like that, you know, so that so that um, bits and pieces of this mythology are scattered all over the place, like in Grimm's fairy tales and um, uh, local mythologies, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a very textured sort of thing, but um, uh, yeah, very widespread, but hidden in lots of ways largely because hidden from us because largely we're not agricultural people anymore and so we don't quite understand that sort of mythology but also hidden because it's been passed on through the centuries on a peasant level mm. Mm. it's um one of the farmers i've spoken to um biodynamic farmers uh he um told me and this is when i was initially getting interested in it that um, some of the produce that he got from his farm mm. would last an incredibly long time. Um, yeah, that's right. He gave me examples of like apples that lasted for months and stuff like this. Um, mm. And one of the themes in your um, article was you, you mentioned orumic plants basically being less bound by the seasons and, and more mm. robust against yep. uh, macrocosmic intrusions, I think is the way you put it. Um, yeah. Is, is this part of the, the feature of this plant that they were after? They wanted something that was just robust and, and this was reflected yes. in the produce, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah and it's, it's part of its intelligence. It's just much more adaptable. Mm. It, uh, um, it, it, it can respond much better to its environment so it lasts longer. But it's also, it's, it's in its very structures. Uh, Alex Podolensky did a lot of research into this, into the inner structures of biodynamic produce and um, um, the, the the arrangement of things the structures of things is 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 tighter and better and so the produce lasts longer yeah it's not puffed up with um, with uh, water basically yeah. there's less water uh, and uh, things are held together much more it's the biodynamic produce, has much more structure because the soil in which it's grown it has much more structure. If you if you grow things in compacted soil, what you get is you might get large volumes of things, but it's full of water, mm. and you know it's uh, and it's going to it's going to rot very quickly, and uh, it's also going to be much more subject to frost, and to other seasonal um, se seasonal variations. Hmm. I think one of the mechanisms uh, he described was uh, when you use fertilizers and water together, the plant will suck up the water, but essentially it's meant to be two systems. So you use the big roots for the water and I think the finer roots for the minerals and stuff that the plant needs. Feeding and, roots, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's Absolutely. right. And yeah. that's, that's, that's the crux of the matter. The crux of the matter is that in the 19th century, a, a, a German scientist named uh, Liebig, Liebig discovered that plants absorb nutrients in a water-soluble form. And so that was the beginning of artificial fertilizers. He realized that if you just dissolve the nutrients in water you can, and you pour them on plants, the plants will grow. But what the, the problem with that is that in nature, that's not really how plants work. Um, there's an intermediate world between the mineral world and the plant roots, and that is humus. And the humus is a different chemistry altogether about which Liebig knew absolutely nothing, namely colloidal chemistry. Mm. 
Mm. And and so what what you've got in good soil are the nutrients. Yeah, they're they're in water, but they're held in suspension in the new in the humus, and the plants draw on that as they need it in relation to the amount of sunlight that they get. So that's the relation between the earth and the sky. In industrial agriculture, that whole relation is broken. That is to say, you can you can make plants big and fat very easily by just pouring on artificial fertilizers and they will suck it up, the plants. But what you're doing at that time is making the humus and the organic matter in the soil irrelevant. And so the it's like it's like uh, um, yeah you can you can you can make someone big and big and strong on steroids and you can inject them with with things but eventually their their digestive system will collapse mm. if you if you if you make it irrelevant mm. um, and that's sort of what you're doing to plants you're making their you're making that intermediate realm between the mineral world and the plant world uh, there's in between that is humus noticing noticing that the word humus is related to human that's uh, that's a very important etymology um, th- th- what should happen is that the soil should be full of humus and the nutrients are held in suspension in the humus in colloidal form and the plant draws on those nutrients as it needs rather than being force-fed. Industrial agriculture force-feeds plants. And they've got much better at it these days. They don't over-force-feed them um, anymore. They've got much better at that. But uh, still, if you force-feed plants, what you're going to produce is weak plants that have to be propped up then with insecticides and and the whole show. yeah, so so it's really about the humus in the soil and the colloids. You know, a colloid is like like butter. The 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 um, the milk solids are held in suspension. Um, that that's uh, it's like a putty that's actually finely distributed through the soil around the the, the the plant roots. So it's not just a matter of having yeah they've got water roots and feeder roots, but the feeder roots should be drawing on the humus in the soil and not the soil water that's uh, yeah so modern plants are kind of like the foie gras of, of vegetation yeah exactly exactly yeah it's full of nutrients and water that they don't necessarily want yeah that's exactly right yeah. that's exactly what they are and and you can you can produce large quantities of it you know it's the rainer quantity it's uh yeah, you can feed the starving millions with that, but it's not good food and it's a short-term fix because you're squandering your basic resource, soil. Mm-hmm. You're mineralizing it. You're destroying the humus and the organic matter by making it irrelevant. Yeah. It just seems a reflection of our mechanistic view of the world and everything, medicine, whatever it is, everything we deconstruct down to what we think of these constituent parts and we, we tend to view the world is just a machine and I just need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and, and, and and our science consists in sort of identifying the levers and pulleys that we can push and pull um, to manipulate the machine. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've always thought though, like what, what, what I can't understand about people is how they don't notice that 
when they try to fix one problem, inevitably it just leads to another. So you're in this endless loop of trying to fix problems in education, <laughs> right? Where, yeah, where yeah, exactly. With regenerative agriculture, yeah, it just seems to fix itself. It's mutually reinforcing, like it's 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 exponentially regenerative, and you just keep yes. putting the surplus back in the land and and all this other stuff. Where where the the opposite, the mechanized industrial method, is um, exponentially um, destructive, and you just keep having to pump more and more fertilizer and you know find other bits yeah, of yeah, land. Yeah. It's a downward places. spiral, yeah. yeah. And it, and it and it is for for individual farmers too. The, there's lots of stories in Australia. Alex Podolensky used to talk about cases, um, and I've known cases too of farmers who, you know, they started, um, they took over a family farm or they bought a farm, and uh, it went all right for a couple of decades. But then yields started to fall, and then the whole thing became much more. The markets became more competitive, and so they had to really push their land. And then uh, yields fell again, and they have to. Keep providing fixes, more and more fixes, and borrowing more and more money to try to fix the the problem, and then eventually they hit the wall, and that's when they rang Alex Podlensky and said, you know, I hear about this biodynamic system um, and that you're fetching good prices for your produce, and my farm's dying. What can you do? And uh, yeah, he dealt with Alex dealt with uh, people who are desperate, who'd, who'd run their run their land into the ground. And there's lots of them, um, uh, not just in this country, but all over. Yeah, India. Yeah. My goodness, my goodness. People that are destroying their land. India's got a massive suicide problem in rural India because people have destroyed their lands with uh, artificial fertilizers. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's unusual. I would have thought that many of them would be still in the traditional way of doing things, but no, you're, you're saying they've. The views. Uh, they've, they've yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of, of recent times, um, yeah, they've they've wrecked their land, and um, <clears throat> and they've got nowhere to go. Um, uh, but that's happening on a large scale. It's a large scale problem. We keep trying to find fixes to the problem. Of course, the, but we're stuck. We are stuck in some ways because. It is true, nevertheless, still, that uh, a totally organic agriculture would, you know, suffer a, probably a 10% loss of production, and we're addicted to that production. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's not a, it's not a, it's not an option to say, oh well, you know, we'll let uh, we'll let huge numbers of people starve um, by cutting production 10%. We just can't do that. Mm. So. Uh, you have to find a, a way out of that problem, yeah. uh, and it'll it'll take a long time, I think, and a lot of damage will be done in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. I often think about that. I'm not sure how how you would do it. It almost seems sometimes we need to learn the hard way as a species. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we do, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things quickly that I forgot to bring up is um, this this idea in Athens of uh, cosmologically um, favorable times to um, to sow seeds effectively um, yeah and and also that that applies to humans I believe as well that it, they, they yeah. had a very you know uh, well like that, that yeah that they do and this is a the, the, um, they have the Plato talks uh, has this this myth of the seasonable marriage, as he calls it, and uh, 
and they practiced that in Athens. They did this is a this is a hangover from earlier agricultural societies uh, uh, and hunter gatherer societies too, where um, they deliberately calculated to have children born when there was plentiful food. It's a survival mechanism, and uh, this persists in Athens, so that they have collective marriages. That is to say, anyone who who decided to get hitched that year would wait until the marriage festival, and all the new newlyweds would all get married together. Now, the upshot of that is that uh, it means that there's going to be a lot of children born roughly around the same time, um, and this was carefully calculated in Athens. It's part of the Athenian calendar. And um, and uh, Plato wants to analogize it to the way that we plant seeds at particular times uh, and, and so on. That's right. But in biodynamics, um, yeah, they try to, in, in, in sensitive soils where the soil is good, seeds will respond to particular planting times. In, in industrial soils, it doesn't matter when you plant anything, you can plant anything anytime. Um, but uh, in biodynamics, over a, over a period of generations, you can, uh, you can adapt seeds to um, particular cosmic environments, if you like, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, um, not, not, yeah just not sure you know, how, how we're going to make it work. And, and just going back, um, um, it, it almost seems that there's going to have to be an embrace of, uh, you know, small scale localized production. It's, it's difficult to imagine mm. how, mm. how you could do this, as you say, on a large, uh, large scale um, with shipping and, you know, all the other things, trucking and all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. almost like we need to go back to basics as, as it were. Yeah. But well, Podolensky is an interesting case because he, he's he's really uh, outstanding in this regard. I think because he he came here from uh, Germany and uh, or Russia. I'm not sure which one. It was he Poland. Was I always thought it was Poland. Poland. He's Poland. Yeah. He was yeah Poland. That's right. But he was in the Russian army during the war. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and he came out here and he realised straight away that you simply cannot do European-style biodynamics in this country. This is a country where you've got huge farms, huge broadacre farms and no irrigation, dry land farming. And uh, so he realised that you can't go making huge compost heaps and all of that. He had to find another way. And so he adapted biodynamics to large-scale farming. And in Europe, largely you find biodynamics adapted quite successfully to small-scale farming, to hobby farms, family farms, uh, backyard gardens and things like that. Podolensky wasn't interested in that. He was, he was only interested he – he was often very rude and short with uh, small-scale people. He, he thought big. He wanted he – wanted big scale farming on biodynamics. He wanted to work out how to do it on a large scale. And he was very successful. He devoted his life to that. And now there's over, you know, a million hectares of, uh, of uh, Australia under biodynamic cultivation. And he also wanted to work out how you can make it as productive as um, conventional agriculture. I don't think he, he managed to do that 
the attraction of biodynamics for farmers in Australia is that, uh, yeah, you can produce less, but you, you make more money because people will pay higher prices, especially in Europe and Japan for your produce. Mm-hmm. So it's very successful in that regard. Mm-hmm. And he's certainly regenerating huge amounts of Australia. Um, and he's worked out how to do it on a large scale. Um, but there's still the problem that it's not quite as productive as um, as industri- industrial agriculture. Mm, sure. So, so we we have these notions of the, of the man plant. Um, we know what's wrong with the way we're doing things. Mm. What, from from a more cosmological angle, mm. what do you think we can do to reinstate this view of things? Do you think there's any practical way we can get back to this, or are we? It's just a feature of the age that we're in. We're well, I think, no. I, think uh, I think the biodynamic uh, thing is, and the organic movement large, on a larger, wider frame, um, I think all of that's good and, and, and we shouldn't, uh, I think there's lots of positive things. I mean, just in my lifetime, for instance, uh, things have moved a long way in a good direction, in all sorts of ways, they're in bad direction, but but uh, when I was when I was young and I first became interested in organic food and so forth, you couldn't buy f- organic food in a supermarket, not a mm. chance. You couldn't buy. There was a very very limited range of stuff. You couldn't find books, um, and so on. Uh, gee, it was illegal in this country to 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 to, to sell free range eggs um, when I was young. You know, um, the, the the it was purely industrial stuff. But since then, there's been a, a grassroots movement that's been very, very successful. Um, it, it hasn't taken over, but it's, uh, but it's there and it's growing. And, and so I think that's very positive. Um, I think cosmologically, agriculture is a really good place to start. Agriculture, it's, you start from the ground up. Um, that's one of the things about the alchemical approach you know you start with basic things you start on the ground level and you build up um, rather than thinking that the answer to our problems is to escape into a uh, uh, into a rarefied um, uh, upper realm it's better to start it roll up your sleeves and start at ground level is uh, is the is the idea i think that that's good that's about all you can do really sure yeah mm. e- even from a materialist angle um i recently was doing a little bit of research on soil microbiomes uh, and stuff like that and uh mm. how, they, how they're noticing now that um our interaction with the biomes in the soil actually have evolutionary uh, effects on us and and the, the biomes that we inherit from the soil that are in our guts and on our skin you know in all these places we yeah 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 gene, gene transfers between these yeah. bacteria and there's all sorts of things mechanisms that are going on um yeah and as you say uh, if those fundamental systems are out of whack like it's it's not good it's almost like you you must go back to those fundamental places and try to restore them as much as you can as, yeah as yeah I, that's that's right i think you i think you too um uh that you have you have to you, you can't persist with getting those fundamental things wrong um, and uh, the nature will call you out 
mm. in the end. Um, but microbiome, that's right, we're discovering more and more of this. Steiner's really interesting in that regard. Um, uh, I don't think it's, maybe it's in the um, agriculture lectures. Um, we're discovering, for instance, now, and it's only in the 1990s that all of that microbiome sort of research really began and uh, um, really got going. Um, the idea that, because the, the gut bacteria is a direct parallel to the soil. It's like it is the soil inside us, mm -hmm. and we grow out of that, if you like. Um, Steiner wants to make a connection between our minds and our microbiome even though even though he doesn't it's before that research That's he's very prescient in that regard yeah, yeah wow. he, he he draws a parallel and he apologizes it for it between between uh our brains and our intestines hmm. um, there you go so and it's vagus the vagus nerve is actually the vagus the nerve yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and we're all of that. I know, I know. In uh, nutrition and so forth, all of that research is very, very new. People, people have only calculated the microbiome of re very recent times, but now we understand that it's absolutely crucial. It, it's it's as it's as important to look after that in our bodies as it is to look after the soil in our farms. Yeah, yeah. You can imagine how this, like the, the soil and and its contents, could have a, a direct impact on on not only us in our phenotype and the way that we are, but also our psyche. Um, yeah, that's you know, right. That's who knows right. the mechanisms that exist there, right? Like we, yeah, yeah, probably scarcely comprehend the impact. Yeah, yeah. We're, that's really in its infancy. We've got our, our knowledge of that is very, very primitive. Um, but uh, but yeah, Stein is very interesting in that regard. Stein is pretty strange, but uh, but he says many prescient things. Yeah. Hmm. How do you, how do you view him in a traditionalist in a Steiner. traditionalist view? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh well, um, I think well, I I identified two streams in Steiner. One is one is the Goethean science stream, the alchemical Goethean sort of stuff from Goethe, and he was a he was a he was a Goethe scholar. Um, in his early days, and uh, um, he edited Goethe's scientific work. So there's that in Steiner. But then, at a certain point, he—well, the point he married actually—he became interested in and involved in theosophy. And so you get that theosophical sort of strand and the Goethean strand. Um, I sort of regard that as unfortunate. I'm. Mm. I, I, I think that the theosophical framework distorts. Steiner's work and uh, so when I read Steiner I have to sort through it and just try to find the Goethean science mm -hmm, mm -hmm. sure largely yep. uh, mm -hmm. and then there's then on top of that there's a very strange Christianity that's thrown in there as well you know <laughs> uh, yeah so I try not to I try not I try to uh, disengage or separate those elements in Steiner yeah sure yeah me, me too actually I yeah I yeah. find a, a lot of it kind of odd I mean he himself said that he was like uh, everything he was doing was was new it's almost like yeah. there's a progressive element to it it's not really yeah 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 a, you know a return as such it's, um, no not at all and uh he's very particular about that and he he uh he all frames everything in terms of evolution of spiritual evolution and that's what he thinks he's doing yeah mm -hmm. yeah so um i guess we should think about finishing up do you, do you have any mm -hmm. um 
final words, uh, things that maybe yeah. we considered that are important. Feel feel free. Um, yeah, just uh, just in terms of the the autochthony myths and, and that idea of being born from the soil and grounded in the soil. That's uh, I'm, I'm I I pursue that I, I pursued that idea across many cultures and that that sort of idea. And I often you know wonder what what on earth is all that about really. Um, and it's obvious enough to see the way it operates in, say, on a political level, where, for, for instance, you know, people are people are very want to have roots in their homeland, and uh, people are there's there's a movement these days for people to rediscover their ancestry and their ancestral roots, eat ancestral foods and uh, things like that. It's sort of a rootedness. People need that and and look for that. But ultimately, I think uh, ultimately, I think the idea of the autochthon is someone who's rooted in the ground of being, if you like, rooted in the ground of being. And uh, strangely, the, one of the places I find this is in Heidegger. Heidegger talks about exactly this: how we're rootless, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that's the difference between an autoch- the autochthon and the and the you know the man of the iron age the man of the iron age has is rootless and wanders around is blown around like spin effects you know um but so yeah what what ultimately is missing here it's uh, that idea of autochthony is about being rooted in the cosmos being having really deep roots in the existential roots and uh, it's not just a, a spiritual state. It's not just uh, so. It's a it's a type of yeah. In modern terms, autochthony we d- often describe it as authenticity, being an authentic being. And uh, in agricultural terms, it's about producing authentic plants, real plants. It's about a a, a degree of reality and realness, being authentic. Uh, I think that that's what it is, rather than being an imitation. Um, ultimately, that's what the autochthony myths are about. They're about authenticity and existential authenticity, I think. And, uh, yeah, that extends in alchemy, alchemical perspectives, that extends all the way down to, you know, the way we grow plants and the way we look after the soil. Um so ultimately, it's a it's a wide philosophical problem or a spiritual problem of modernity. This lack of authenticity. We live in a, a fake world of fake food, uh, and so on. Yeah, I think it's about authenticity in the end. Mm, I I agree. It's it's something. It's it's even difficult to pursue, even if you are aware of authenticity and the need for it. I mean, you have digital uh, personalities. You know, you could be on Twitter or something, and you yeah you know, yeah exactly yeah logo. You know, a picture or something that's not you, and and you know you're having arguments with other pictures that are not them. It's just this absurd kind of yes. un- unreality. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's an, and it's, but but it's but it extends beyond us too because my worry is that authenticity may may actually be a virtue of last resort. You know, it's like you say, well, I live in a, a society from which I'm alienated, in a meaningless cosmos. But hey, I'm me. You know, it's a it's a very modern claim, this sort of uh, paltry claim to uniqueness. 
as uh, what we pass as for authenticity. Mm. Whereas real authenticity means having real roots in the society in which you live and being reconciled and comfortable in the cosmos in which you live. And we're a long, long way from that. And that's the golden age is that. It's where there's this sort of uh, uh, parallel between the inner world, the social world and the cosmic world and everything's held together. Um, that's the golden age, but eventually it falls apart and that's where we're at. <laughs> yeah, certainly, mm. certainly are. It's definitely an irony in people thinking they're unique as well because I'm not seeing it um, very much. No, that's right. That's right. That's what I mean. It's a sort of a paltry claim, isn't it, that uh, mm. when someone says, yeah, but I'm me, um, yeah. Is, yeah, particularly as a Buddhist, which which I basically am, I think I find that, yeah. that sort of claim quite absurd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, reasons. you would. That's yeah. right. Yeah. For many reasons, that's right. Yeah, well, from a Buddhist perspective, I guess your focus, ultimately the focus in Buddhism is exactly that darkness beyond the stars, that void. Mm. Uh, it's conceived as a void there, yeah? Um, I'm, I'm not very conversant with Buddhism, but uh, yeah. yeah. No, it's it's very much a case. Yeah, I, I think that's that's an excellent way way to end things. Um, I just wanted to ask: uh, Do you have any projects stuff that you're doing at the moment? Because actually, there's a couple of other um, articles, and I'm going to provide all the listeners with links mm. to this stuff. Um, okay, great. Yeah, and, and I'd even like to have you on again because I like to discuss um, the the wine article that you've got. I really enjoyed. But um, can okay, we go yeah, through sure. some of the projects you've you've you're working on now and some of the projects yeah. you've done. Okay, yeah, sure. Oh, well, you know, uh, lots of things are on hold because I found myself in a pandemic. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and I actually got stranded here. You know, I, I came back here uh, at the beginning of the pandemic and didn't know how it was going to go and then, yeah, and now I can't leave. Okay, you're um, in Australia? or I'm in Australia, yeah. Right. I wasn't okay. resident in Australia at the time, oh, but I am I now. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I am now. So, um, so yeah, I, what I've done is uh, I'm, I'm doing lots of writing. There's not much else I can do at uh, at this stage. Um, so I'm I'm working on uh, uh, just on essays uh, and some larger works. Um, uh, that's that's largely what I'm doing at the moment. Um, just doing some more writing. One of the things I am doing is my my mentor Roger Sorter, uh, the uh, Platonist, uh, who I knew for thirty years. He died uh, a couple of years ago, and we've got a lot of his writings which have been published. What I want to do is um, go through that writing again and write commentaries on it because. Um, more than anyone else, probably, I spent a long time talking to him about uh, all, of, all of the stuff that he wrote down. Mm. And so I'm in a good position to write commentaries on it, I think. Yeah, definitely. Do, do you have a website people can go to? I might share it. No, I don't, I don't, have, a, I don't have a specific website, no. Um, okay. Not at, at, at the moment, no. Um, I'll get some links. To yeah, that so that's anyway. yeah. that, so that's what I'm doing. But I'm happy to talk about any of the stuff I've already published. Um, yeah, by all means, any of those essays, the one, the one about wine. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that was fascinating. That one. 
being, being a big fan of wine myself, um, <laughs> I'd like, like to see the more esoteric elements um, that go into yeah. it. It was it was good. I actually I actually read that read that paper in uh, I wrote that paper and read that paper in Pakistan, which was um, which was interesting because mm. they're yeah uh, dry dry country. It's a very dry country. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, and it was a, yeah. Some of the local people regarded that it as a bit controversial, but only because of the context. Yeah, sure. Are you living? Were you living over there previously before coming back, or are you in in Pakistan? No, no, yeah, I, no. no I, I was a visitor to Pakistan. Okay, right, but right. Uh, no, I was living in Malaysia. Malaysia. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Never yeah, been. I was living in. Seems like a. No. Place. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Malaysia is a fascinating place. It's one of the. Yeah, it's a very strange place and because of its ethnic mix, you know. Mm, mm. It's a, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you, Rodney. Thank you for coming on. Okay. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah.